You'll open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6. When we lived in Florida, we lived just a couple of blocks from a cemetery. And the, the place that it repaired my car whenever I needed a car repair was just down the way from us, several blocks. And it was always much quicker to go across the cemetery. And I always felt a little bit eerie about it. I always felt it was a little bit awkward cutting across the seminary or the seminary cemetery from the cemetery. Some students feel it is a cemetery, but nevertheless, cutting across the cemetery, particularly when the sun had already set, it was eerily quiet. But if you have ears to hear, you can hear something in a cemetery. No, I don't mean the dead verbally and and, uh, and audibly speak, but if you pass by the graves of people that you know, sometimes their life communicates a message to you. Whenever we return to Florida, I mentioned to you that we will often in Titusville, I'll go to my, my mom and my dad and my brother all buried in the, same, in the same cemetery, and I realize they're not there. And uh, sometimes we may visit, and I don't go there. But it's not odd for us just to, to drive over, stop, get out of the car, straighten up uh, the, the graves just a little bit out of, and, and just re- reminisce and, and reflect on, on days gone by. If you have ears to hear, sometimes dead people speak. That's what we have in the passage before us this morning. We're going to look at four people that are dead, and we're going to hear what they say to us from this passage. It's about the execution of one of God's most eminent prophets, John the Baptist. Mark gives us more detail than any other gospel about the decapitation of John the Baptist. As I reflected this week on this passage and meditated on it and studied it, I I came to the settled conclusion that there are voices speaking to us from this passage. Follow along. I want to begin reading in verse 14. I want to read all the way through verse 49 and then talk with you this morning about when dead men talk, the execution of John the Baptist. And King Herod heard of it. You remember last week how we talked about that Jesus and his disciples were casting out demons, healing the sick, preaching the gospel, when King Herod heard of it, for Jesus' name had become well known and people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead, and that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah, and others were saying he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod Antipas heard of it. He kept saying, John, whom I beheaded, has risen. 
For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guest. And the king said to the girl, Ask me for whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, Whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guest, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. And brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his headless body and laid it in a tomb. Things don't always turn out as we would expect in life. Who would have ever dreamed that John the Baptist, whom Jesus said was the greatest man ever born up to that point in human history, would die a brutal death? Not a sanitized death, a brutal death. He was decapitated by, under orders of Herod Antipas. Life doesn't always turn out exactly like we think it will. In fact, if you listen closely in the cemetery of the biblical narrative, you can hear John the Baptist say, God never promises us our heavenly reward in this life. God never promises us our heavenly reward in this life. Here is a faithful prophet recognized as the forerunner of God's Messiah. And his last days were spent in a prison, isolated and alone. And his prison stay culminated with a violent decapitation. We need to understand that This happened suddenly and unexpectedly to this man. He had been arrested so that he could be protected, oddly enough, by Herod Antipas from his wife, whom had been married to his brother. And because John preached against that marriage as an illicit relationship, and Herodias wanted him killed, 
Herod tried to protect him. And then suddenly, unexpectedly, the executioner arrived at John's cell and said, follow me. They bound his hands behind his back, took him out to a chopping block, had him bend on his knees on the ground, lay his head on its side on the chopping block, and the executioner began to swing that large axe until his head was severed from his body. John knew what was coming the moment he saw the chopping block. John knew what was about to take place the moment that he knelt beside it. The thoughts are swirling around in his mind as he lays his head on its side. He can sense the executioner drawing back the axe, and then he hears it beginning to swing forward, and then the first whack isn't going to take the head off. But it'll take the life of the prophet. This is the earthly reward from some of God, for some of God's greatest saints. We could turn to Acts chapter 7 with Stephen. Stephen was the first Christian martyr, but not the last. He was murdered by an act of mob violence in Jerusalem. An angry mob stoned him to death. Stephen got up one day. And little did he know that his message had so, had so angered the religious leaders and so infuriated the Sanhedrin that they would lead a mob to murder him. The same is true of James, the half-brother of Jesus, the first apostle martyred. Herod Agrippa I had Peter and James, the son of Zebedee, arrested, and James was executed. Peter, unbeknownst to us as to why, except God had a plan for him, miraculously escaped, but not James, the son of Zebedee. James died a martyr's death. James, the brother of Jesus, in A.D. 62, murdered by a mob in Jerusalem because of his commitment to the gospel. You see, stories like these are a clear reminder that our best days are yet to come. And they come on the other side of the grave. I spent several hours in my my study alone yesterday just meditating back through all of this and and I want to read to you, and you can follow along on the screen, something that I, that I wrote and inserted into my message yesterday. Here, in this world, we must walk by faith and not by sight. And if we look for man's praise and earthly riches, we will be greatly disappointed. Here, in this life... We must sow gospel seed, labor for the kingdom, fight the good fight of faith, and endure persecution. All the time waiting for our heavenly reward. 
If we look for an earthly reward, we will be greatly disheartened and we will not find it. But this life is not the end. Heaven will make amends for all our labor and hardship. And nobody knew this better than the Apostle Paul. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9, he writes, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, and no mind has imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. Writing to the Romans in chapter 8, verse 18, The sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which is to be revealed. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17, he writes, Our light affliction, which is but a moment, but which is for a moment, works for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. As we visit the biblical grave of a decapitated prophet, this is what he says to us. Don't look for your reward in this life. God's storing it up for you in eternity. But there's a second grave we've got to visit. There's a second testimony that we need to hear. It's the testimony of Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. So as we approach his tomb, what do we hear? We hear that a person can go very far in religion and ultimately fall short of salvation. A person can go very far in religion and ultimately fall short in salvation. Look in verse 20. It's a stunning verse. For Herod was afraid of John knowing that it was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but used to enjoy listening to him. Antipas had a tremendous respect and fear, even, of John the Baptist. He knew him to be a powerful spokesperson for God. What an astonishing thought. A prophet of God armed only with the truth of God's word unsettles the conscience of a very powerful man. There was nobody Antipas feared because he had quite a substantial army, except a solitary figure, an Elijah-like prophet who called him to repentance because of his relationship with his brother's wife. Not only did he fear John, he he enjoyed listening to John's preaching. He was impressed by the power and the forthrightness of his message. If John was anything, he was a plain-spoken, direct voice for God. He didn't care how great you were. He didn't care how small you were. He called you to repentance. And and his fear was of such a nature that he protected him from his wife. He feared John because he knew that John was God's man. And if you'll notice it, What's stunning about it all is the power of the truth of God's Word. 
and the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, who would have ever believed that a person as decadent as Herod Antipas would be drawn to the person, the messenger of God's prophet? And that he would have been intimidated by the prophet preaching the truth of God's word. But never underestimate the truth of God's word and the power of God's spirit. This ought to be a word of encouragement to every Bible fellowship group teacher and to every parent. If you will teach God's word and live for God's glory, don't be surprised at what God does in those to whom you speak. Maybe in your family devotions, your children seem inattentive. Gospel seeds being planted. Don't underestimate what God's Spirit can do with God's truth. Maybe in your Bible fellowship group, as you're teaching, they seem disengaged. Don't be surprised at what God may do with the truth of His Word in their lives. Often there's a lot more going on in the life of a person than we could ever imagine. A person's heart is visible only to God. And at the most unexpected time, God can bring those seeds to fruition. They can bear fruit. Sometimes it takes a long time, but God can do it in a moment of time. And yet the the voice of Antipas is saying to us, a person can go a long way in religion and yet fall short of salvation because there was one thing he would not do, and that is give up his adulterous relationship with his brother's wife, and he chose to to go to hell for experiencing sexual satisfaction in this life. That is, what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Sometimes he'll give sexual satisfaction in exchange for his soul. What a trade. A moment of pleasure for a lifetime of damnation. We stand at the grave of Herod Antipas, and his voice resonates the thought, you can make it to the edge and refused to step over. And that's exactly what he did. But there's a third character. There's a third tomb. There's a third voice that speaks to us from the dead. And it's the voice of Herodias, the wife of Herod Antipas, who had been married to his brother. What does her voice say? Her voice says this, when you resist God's voice, your heart becomes hard and callous. When we look at Herodias, we see how one can develop literally a hatred for the one who points out their sin if they are not willing to give it up. It teaches us how bitter people become when they want their sin rather than repent of it. Our hearts become hardened when we dig in our heels and embrace that for, which God te- that for which God tells us to forsake. It happens sometimes in a marriage when a husband refuses the loving rebuke of his wife 
because he finds her beneath him, or he finds her, her words too convicting, he resolves in his own heart, I will not apologize. I will not repent. They want to be left alone. They're irritated by opposition. When you visit the voice or the the tomb of Herodias, you hear the voice when you resist God's voice. Your heart becomes hard and callous. But there's a fourth voice that we hear. There's a fourth tomb that we visit. And it's the tomb of Jesus. Interestingly enough, it's the only tomb that's empty. Let me show you what I mean by this. Look with me in verse, in the last verse of this section, verse 29. The latter part of it says, John's disciples came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. Interestingly enough, that word tomb isn't used very many times in Mark's gospel. I look up all of the references. The first time the word tomb is used is in chapter 5. It's used twice in reference to the Gadarean demoniac. The Gadarean demoniac lived among the tombs. The Gadarean demoniac ran among the tombs. It's used twice in Mark chapter 5, in verse 3 and verse 5. Then it's used here in verse 6 in reference to the tomb of John the Baptist, but it's not used again until chapter 15. And in chapter 15 of Mark's gospel, verse 46, this is what Mark writes. Joseph bought a linen cloth and took down his body and wrapped him in the linen cloth and laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. You know, the interesting thing is John was Jesus' forerunner in life and he was Jesus' forerunner in death. The difference is Jesus' body didn't stay in the grave. Mark chapter 16 and verse 2 puts it like this. Very early on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they discovered that the tomb was empty. You go to the tomb of John the Baptist and there is a decomposed body. There are just bones. You go to the tomb of Herod Antipas, there's a decomposed body. There's nothing but bones. You go to the tomb of Herodias, and there is a decomposed body. There's nothing but bones. But you go to the tomb of this Galilean carpenter, and you don't find a decomposed body, nor do you find bones but you find angels saying, he is not here, he has risen from the dead. That's a voice that's worth listening to. That's a voice that's worth heeding. You say, what, what's all this got to do with, the, with preparing us for the, for the Lord's Supper, Pastor? Well, let me give you a couple of final thoughts in preparation for the Lord's Supper that, that I glean from this passage. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, we need to ask ourselves, are you ready to die 
today without regrets. That's the way John the Baptist died. Are you ready to die today without regrets? John was executed suddenly and unexpectedly, but he had no regrets because he had lived his life for the king's glory. Are you willing to die with no regrets? Or is there somebody you need to talk to? Is there something you need to do? Is there a sin that you need to cast off? Is there repentance that you need to actualize? If there is, you're not ready to die without regret. Herod Antipas died with regret. Herodias died with regret. John the Baptist died without regret. As we get ready to take the Lord's Supper, can you say, I'm ready to die and no regrets? Not that you haven't done anything wrong, nor that have I ever done anything wrong, and, and even things that we wish we could undo. But we've repented of them. We've asked forgiveness for them. We've made right those we've wronged. And we stand in good stead with them. A second question. Are you, li- are you willing to live today for God's glory despite your reward not coming until eternity? Are you willing to live today for God's glory despite the fact that your reward is not coming until eternity? Now, we get little inklings along the way. We get little blessings along the way, uh, little things that God graciously does that, that lets us know that, that the reward in heaven will be richer and fuller and more satisfying than anything in this life. But if you live your life today for the pat on the back, if you live your life today for some kind of earthly reward, you're going to be disheartened. You're going to be disappointed. You're going to become discouraged. You're going to be downcast. And eventually, you're going to give up because... Nobody knows, nobody recognizes, nobody hears the prayers that you pray, nobody sees the sacrifices that you make, nobody knows the financial commitment that you've made, except the only person that really matters. He knows, he sees, and he hears. And he says, no eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has imagined what God has in store for those who love him. But you know what? It's most likely that we're going to have our body in a, in a grave before the Lord returns. It, it could come tomorrow, maybe. I think I'll probably be dead. I'd like to be here to experience the transformation without dying, but I want my family to hear my voice from my tomb, say no regrets, eternal reward. I'm going to lead us in a moment of prayer, and then we're going to prepare to take the Lord's Supper. Maybe this morning you would like to confess to the Lord something that you have regrets for. And we would give you the opportunity in just a moment to do that. Maybe you'd just like to say, Lord, I, I, 
I just want to be honest, I focus so much on, on this life that I haven't contemplated very much the life to come and that that's where I'll receive my true rewards and the greatest blessings in life. And just tell him that in the quietness of your, of your, of your heart. But let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you today for this passage and how it prepares us to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And Lord, as we contemplate the voices that come from the crypts of John the Baptist and Herod Antipas and Herodias and the empty tomb of our Lord Jesus Christ, we're reminded that that death comes suddenly and unexpectedly. It comes quicker than we could have ever imagined, and, and we want to die without regret. Lord, if there are things in our heart that we need to confess, regrets that we haven't brought before you, bring them to our minds right now that we may confess them, repent of them, and do right. And Father, if we get discouraged because we don't make enough money, We don't live in a big enough home. We don't have the zip code we want to have. We'd like to have a tailor to buy our clothes rather than Target. Please forgive us that we expect too much out of this life and we don't long quite enough for the life to come. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you're a guest with us today, you may be wondering, well, Pastor, what would would you like like us to do as guests? Well, if you're a Christian actively involved in an evangelical church or seeking after the Lord, we would love to have you celebrate the Lord's Supper with us, and uh, we're grateful that you're with us today. If you're a Christian and you're not, or you're a Christian and you're not following after the Lord, whether you're a member of another church or our church, we would say, please don't do this. It's not for your good. It won't be helpful to you. First Corinthians 11 says God will punish you if you take the Lord's Supper when you ought not take it. Check out First Corinthians chapter 11. But maybe you're where I am, and you make two steps forward and one step back, and you pick yourself up and say, Father, forgive me. I don't know why I did that. And you wrap your arms around your spouse and you say, listen, I, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I shouldn't have said what I said the way that I said it. Please forgive me. And you find yourself a, a, a person struggling with indwelling sin, but you, but you want to long for eternity more than this life. And you want to die without regrets. And by all means, please, please celebrate the Lord's Supper with us today. I'm going to ask our deacons to come forward. The chairman of our deacons, Mr. Sean Veets, is going to assist me as we, as we give the elements out this morning. So if you'll just hold the, hold the little wafer, we'll all take it at just the same time. This little wafer is intended to remind us that Jesus' body was broken on the cross for us, that in his body, he bore the punishment for our sin. If you take this bread, no regrets. 
Father, we thank you that in Jesus you have forgiven us of our sin and you punished him in our place. In Jesus' name, amen. Men will distribute the juice. I'm going to ask if you'll stand. In just a moment, we'll drink the cup, which is to remind us that without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. No earthly reward, but a reward in heaven. Drink. Father, we thank you that before us is something more marvelous and magnificent and spectacular than our minds could possibly wrap its arms around. That we live by faith in this world and not by sight, but we do have your word, and that's enough for us. Your word is enough for us. And we long for that day when our Savior appears. In Jesus' name.